Did you know that you can be a critically thinking, rational person and be a Christian? Did you know that there's good evidence that Christianity is true? Did you know that the Christian faith can withstand the toughest of scrutiny? Welcome to the Cerebral Faith Podcast, where we believe because of the brains God gave us and not in spite of them. I'm your host, Evan Minton. Welcome to the Cerebral Faith Podcast, where we use the brains that God gave us. Um, today, we're going to be talking about the evidence, the historical evidence for the historicity of the Old Testament. We're going to show that there is good evidence that in the Hebrew Bible actually occurred. They are not myths. They are not fairy tales, as skeptics, uh, atheists, and agnostics would have you believe. And of course, uh, there are, I believe, two ways to get to the resurrect, uh, to the um, the an epistle. The first uh, is uh, archaeological and extra biblical evidence that show that these events actually occurred. The second is what I covered in the final video of my YouTube series, "The Case for the Resurrection of Jesus," where I argue that Jesus claimed to be God. And as a Jewish rabbi, he treated the Old Testament as divinely inspired. And so if Jesus claimed to be God and he wasn't, well, God never raised him from the dead. But if he claimed to be God and he really was, his resurrection proves that Jesus was telling the truth. So because Jesus put, if Jesus claimed to be God and then died and rose from the dead, we can put a lot of stock in what Jesus taught about various things on spiritual issues, the uh, what ho- what holy books we should believe uh, among them. But today we're not going we're going to be talking about the second way that you can um, believe that the events in the Old Testament occurred, and that is just extra biblical archaeological support that shows that the person who put uh, pen to papyrus wasn't just making stuff up. And today I have as my guest, Kristen Davis. Kristen Davis is the founder of Doubtless Faith Ministries. Uh, she speaks internationally. She graduated summa cum laude from Liberty University with a Bachelor of Science in Religion. She has a Master of Arts in Christian Apologetics, highest honors from Biola University, and is a PhD candidate in philosophy of religion at Southern Evangelical Seminary. She is also the director of systems integration for a financial tech company. She studied world religions in India and biblical archaeology in Israel, and her passion is to defend. Ms. Davis, thank you for coming on to the podcast today. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to talking about biblical archaeology with you today. So first, I want to ask, why does the historical reliability of the Old Testament matter? (laughs) that's a great question um the reason that i think that the archaeological and historical evidence for the old testament is significant is because a lot of what we believe in the new testament is a fulfillment of the old testament um and so jesus coming and dying on the cross was a, a, a completion of the sacrificial system that we see in the old testament it's a completion of the promise and the covenant that was given to abraham and so if the old testament is not historically reliable 
then there can't be all of the fulfillment of prophecy that we expect. Um, that's one of the miraculous things about Jesus' life is that he fulfilled over a hundred prophecies. But if the Old Testament's not actually historically true, then that undermines that. But it also ends up impacting a significant number of things that we believe about God. For example, if David wasn't a real person, then we lose a huge understanding of, of grace and God's love. Because remember, David is the only man in scripture that God says is after his own heart, but he's also a liar and a, an adulterer and a murderer. So God um, gives us a beautiful picture of grace through David um, and others in the Old Testament. And so the history really makes a difference if we're going to have a comprehensive understanding of who God is and his relationship to people. Yeah. And also, I mean, that going back to what you said about prophecy, like Jesus can't be the son of David if there is no David. Yeah, that's very true. <laughs> he can't be the second Adam if there and, was no uh, Adam, you know. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The whole, the whole Adam thing, I, you know, not, not to go off on a, on a rabbit trail, but that's, that's one of the reasons why I can't forfeit a, a historical Adam. I'm, I'm willing to look at different interpretations of Genesis two and three, but you, you've got, you've got to have, you've got to have an Adam and Eve and you have to have a fall or else, Romans 5 is just nonsense. I, I like to say that it makes as much sense as saying that your grandmother died when Thanos snipped his fingers. Well, there is no Thanos. <laughs> yeah. So there, it, that's absurd. Yep. I completely agree. So um, absence of evidence is often cited as evidence that the Old Testament writers making stuff up. Uh, one example is that the people group called the Hittites. Uh, is there any extra biblical evidence for the Hittites? Yeah. So uh, that's actually my favorite example when it comes to objections about the absence of evidence. Um, so the Hittites were a people group that were mentioned over 40 times in the Old Testament, and it's all the way through the entire Old Testament. We've got Abraham interacting with them. Um, and so if they are not a real historical people group, then we have major historical issues with a good chunk of the Old Testament scriptures. But in 1906, Hugo Winkler was excavating at a site outside Turkey when he uh, came up across what became known as the Hittite capital of Hattusha. Um, it, when they uncovered and um, translated a huge library that they found at this particular site, they realized that it had been a major military might in its day and had rivaled e uh, even Egypt. And um, they found some pretty significant finds there, a huge library with a bunch of um, um, texts that have been preserved as a result of burning the clay. Um, and then they found um, a fortified citadel, mo numerous monumental um, inscriptions and uh, monuments revering how um, influential they had been in the culture. And so it turned out that actually the Bible had evidence of, of a historical people group before secular historians did. And I love this example because it does prove that absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. And I think that that's significant because of the fact that 90% of what existed in antiquity was actually destroyed in antiquity. If you think about your home 
and you think about some sort of natural disaster or if some foreign people group were to come conquer your home, how much of your home would actually be left after they pillaged or burned it? Or I lived on here in Florida, so there's hurricanes. And so how much of your house and your life would actually be left after some sort of disaster? Not very much. And then if you let it lay fallow for 2,000 or 4,000 years, how much would then be left in order for somebody to find out about you? And so that's kind of where we are. There's only about 10% of what existed in antiquity for us to find still. And then of that, only about 1% of the 10% has actually been uncovered and analyzed. There's storerooms full of discoveries that have just not, there's not enough manpower um, or financing to even go through all of them. And so just because we haven't found evidence of some people group does not mean, that, or some event in scripture or some person in scripture doesn't mean that they didn't exist. There's no um, disproof in that, that respect. Yeah, I, I've as I've read through books on biblical archaeology uh, about the evidence in the Old Testament and the New Testament, what well, I see a pattern. Like time after time throughout history, they're like, "Oh, there's no evidence for this event. The Bible probably just made that." And then later, oh, somebody finds an inscription or some coins or an or a document written by some ancient writer or something, and then the skeptics are like, "Oh." The Bible got it right after all. And this happens time <laughs> after time after time. Yeah. It sort of has created a boy who cries wolf scenario. So that <laughs> yeah. back in 2016, when I heard about the whole camel thing, uh, oh, they're, they're pro camels weren't pro probably weren't in the land of, uh, of Canaan uh, at, around the time of Abraham. I'm like, you know what? Just wait a years. You'll probably backtrack <laughs> on that. <laughs> yep. Yes, that's very true. Another so, um, example has to do. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh yeah, we're we're dealing for those listening to the podcast. We're kind of dealing on a like a two second delay here. So, what were you going to say? I was just going to say there was another example of that having to do with King David um, and the inscription that was found in nineteen. I think it was nineteen ninety three or nineteen ninety six um, that mentioned um, the king of Aram conquering the king of Israel of the house of David within like 150 years of when um, David would have lived. And so that's another example of where they found something that it's not a nail in the coffin that David was real, but he there's a Davidic dynasty within a couple generations of when he would have actually lived. Um, so, yeah. Mm -hmm. Um. So what support is there for the flood account in Genesis 6 to 9? Um, some would argue that it was copied from the Gilgamesh epic and other uh, part legends in the ancient Near East. Uh, how do you respond to this? I personally think that the flood legends in nearly every single culture actually support a historical flood. In fact, I, I covered this on my YouTube channel when I exegeted through Genesis 1 to 11. Um, I I just think, what are the odds that every single culture would invent similar stories wholesale? And I mean, when you look at these uh, these different flood myths, a lot of them are very similar. And I think that they would establish that something like that happened in the Mesopotamian area a long, long time ago. Well, would you agree with that assessment? Yeah. 
Yeah, I think typically I come across two objections when it comes to the flood. One is that it didn't happen. And the other is that, well, if we're going to grant it, then the biblical account was copied from the Gilgamesh epic because the Gilgamesh epic is about 400 years older than the biblical account. Um, and I would agree that um, I think we have evidence to support both of them. First of all, the fact that we find this myth or this uh record of um, some sort of event taking place in almost every ancient Near Eastern culture, we, we see some sort of evidence for it, whether it be a whole myth account or just like a flood list that, or not a flood list, sorry, a king list that then has um, like a break in it that talks about and the floods came over the earth and, and stuff like that. We see representations of it in so many places that this says to me that something took place. Um, and then the differences between them says to me that as those people groups, their ancestors, they shared some sort of ancestor or some sort of collection of ancestors that all experienced this event. But as these people went off in their own theological directions, they ended up remembering the historical details through their new theological lens. And so as the Babylonians moved off into their own theological um, framework, they adjusted it into what we know as the Gilgamesh epic, as opposed to the Israelites who stayed true to Yahweh. And if you look at the two, um, I don't think we have good reasons to believe that the Gilgamesh epic was the ancestor to the Genesis account. Because if you look at the details, um, they're focused in two entirely different directions. The Gilgamesh epic is um, very mythological. The uh, flood is a secondary note. Uh, the entire text is mainly a propaganda piece for the king um, whose name is Gilgamesh. And it's all about his adventures and antics and whatnot. And at one point in time, he finds out that there's a person who has achieved eternal life. And as a result of this, he goes on this quest to find this person because he wants eternal life. And the person turns out to be this man named Atrakasis, who is uh, the equivalent of the biblical account Noah. And so the way he Atrakasis achieved eternal life was by outsmarting the gods and surviving the flood. That's entirely different from what we find in the Genesis account. Um, there's not a detailed record of, you know, the types of wood that were used or the dimensions or anything like that. It's a, that all of that, the flood's actually a secondary to the whole main uh, piece versus if you look at Genesis, it's so detailed that in Kentucky, they've built a replica of the ark. And so um, you have very different focuses and attention to detail. It reminds me a little bit of the game uh, telephone that you play as a child um, where, you know, the fun part about it is that you guys whisper a story to the next person. And as it gets further and further down the line, the fun part about it is how absurd it becomes by the end. And that's kind of what we find with myths is that the thing that is the most detail oriented is typically not based off of something that's less detail oriented. So the myth is the thing that is more mythological, um, more abstract and less focused on attention to detail. Yeah. Now, at this point, um, someone may ask, well, how do we know that the how do we know that the Israelites were the ones who really per, um, faithfully preserved it? And if you're if you're interested uh, to your audience, uh, you go over to my cerebral cerebral faith video over on YouTube and uh, I take a break from looking at uh, my videos called Genesis uh, seven to eight, the historicity and extent of the flood. I take kind of a, kind of a break and I talk about, uh, I just do an, a little overview of three non-circular arguments for the Bible's inspiration. I, I, I say, well, the reason 
why we believe that the Bible got it right is because the Bible is inspired and inerrant. Um, that's not question begging because we have good reasons that are non-circular to believe the Bible is uh, inspired. So if you want to, if you want to know why, well, why Israel and why not uh, the Babylonians, just go, just go over there uh, and check check that out. Sorry, was there a question? <laughs> <clears throat> no. Um, so you said in your presentation at the uh, National Conference on Christian Apologetics, in which you talked about the uh, archaeological support for the Old Testament, you said that uh, we would not get uh, a more detailed but isn't that exactly what embellished legends do? Don't they don't they start off simple and then get bigger and bigger over time? That's the legend part that gets embellished with details over time, not the detailed oriented. So if you think about um, someone telling a story, the facts become more less true. The fish become the fish that somebody caught when they went fishing is a little bit more accurate in the first story uh, than the next time somebody tells the story and it may be twice as large as it was in the original time they told the story and then three times as large when they are telling it you know to a third audience and that's what we're talking about here is when you look at the Genesis account it is so detail oriented in terms of um, measurable facts so like the size of the the ark the dimensions of it the kinds of things it was made out of they're not it's not in any way focused it almost reads like um, like an architecture document it's kind of boring actually in some respects um and so however if you look at the uh gilgamesh epic the entire thing is very detail oriented as well but in an entirely different way all of the details are about the myth having to do with gilgamesh and how he goes and finds the story not about the actual flood as an a historical event if that makes sense yeah <clears throat> So this, let's talk about the city of Shechem. Uh, Genesis 12 and 33 talk about the city of she Shechem uh, and Abraham and Jacob. Uh, is there any archaeological evidence here? Yes, I love this. This is one of my favorites because oftentimes it's argued that uh, Abraham didn't uh, was a creation of the post-exilic people group. So some anywhere between 400 and 800 BC is when they think he was created. But really the biblical account would have him dating to about the 1800s. And the, there are a couple very specific details, Shechem being one of them, that has makes that impossible, makes it impossible that he could have been created a thousand years after when the Bible says. Um, when Abraham comes through, it says that he comes to the uh, comes through the place of Shechem to the tree of Moray. Doesn't make any mention of there being any sort of city there for him to come to. Then two um, generations later, his grandson comes through the same place, and it says that he came safely to the city of Shechem. Well, what we actually find in the archaeological records is this is two generations. It's um, roughly two hundred years, and so and in the biblical account, it's not very spaced out. It's just a handful of chapters. And so if this was all being made up, then they would be using the same historical details probably for these grandson and grandfather. But what we find in the archaeological record is that there had been a city at Shechem that was populated. But by the time that Abraham comes through this area, it actually has been destroyed and it's uninhabited. So there's no city for Abraham to come to. But 
within about 200 years, by the time that his grandson came through there, the place, the city had been um, rebuilt and repopulated. And so there was a city for him to come to. So these small, minute, nuanced details that um, someone wouldn't be able to accurately guess if they were making up the story a thousand years after the fact, I find them in complete, or incredibly compelling to the historical reliability of, uh, especially the, the patriarchal narratives. In your presentation, you talk about how the slave prices mentioned in the Bible correspond to the slave prices talked about in extra-biblical evidence and how they are accurate for the day. Could you tell our audience about that? Yeah, yeah, that's another one that is um, a favorite of mine. Um, the biblical account has at least three different instances where it makes clear slave prices for a particular event. Um, and every time that we compare that with ancient Near Eastern records, we find that it uh, parallels exactly. So, for example, under the Akkadian Empire, a decent slave was about 10 to 15 silver shekels. But by the time um, the Persians come through in the 5th or 4th century, which is when the um, skeptics would like to argue Abraham was created, a slave price was between 90 and 120 shekels. And there's a whole bunch of data in between that that is kind of lost in an audio, so I won't go through that particularly. But when Joseph is sold into slavery for his um, by his brothers for 20 shekels of silver, that is found to be exactly accurate for the second millennium during the Babylonian period. Um, and when Moses is discusses the compensation to a master for the death of a slave in Exodus 21, he says that that's 30 shekels of silver. And that is also exactly sorry, is also accurate for that period of time as well. Um, and then the last example that I love to give is King Menahem when he taxes the people of Israel 50 shekels of silver in 2 Kings. That's also accurate for the period of time. And so this is like accurately guessing the price of milk or something else that, you know, was just commonplace, accurately guessing that price over a thousand years ago um, without any sort of research tools like Google or anything like that. Yeah, yeah, that that would be pretty hard to just guess and land on by chance. Yeah. So your I I found your section uh, in your NCCA talk on uh, Moses's mother fascinating. Tell us about that. Okay. Yeah. Um. It's there's a um, a little bit of evidence to support the idea that the Queen Hatshepsut might have been the daughter of Pharaoh that survived to adulthood and then adopted Moses. Uh, the reason that we think that is because she's, uh, for a couple different reasons, the first being she's the only adult daughter of Pharaoh, so that she's the only one female that survived to adulthood. And then from there, uh, 20 years after her death, there is a violent destruction of all of the images and attempts to destroy all of the inscriptions about her. So essentially they were trying to obliterate any recollection of her um, from the face of the earth. And also, if you know about uh, Egyptian or Egyptian mythology, what they believed happened when you did that, if you could obliterate someone's image and memory from the earth, then you ought to also end up destroying their soul in the afterlife. So it was actually a fate worse than death, which is an odd thing to do 20 years after someone has died. And so it is posited that the reason for this is actually because um, it took place around the time that the exodus would have taken place. Some have argued that um, her successor just didn't like that he had to follow a woman onto the throne, but that doesn't really make sense to do 20 years after you've achieved the throne. Uh, that's a really long time to be bitter. <laughs> However, um, 
if in fact the person that you adopted and brought in then just exited with your entire slave population and destroyed your entire army, it would make sense why you might want to um, give them a fate worse than death. So, yeah, yeah, I, I think that makes I think that makes sense. Um, speaking of the Exodus, uh, this is this is a real hot button issue in uh, Old Testament scholarship. Um, I don't I don't know if you follow uh, the YouTuber Inspiring Philosophy, but he he put he put up a video, uh, one hour long documentary. His videos are very very well done, uh, very high production quality, uh, in which he defended the historicity of the Exodus. Um, and it was only about a week later that he took it down because he changed his mind. Not that the, not that the, he didn't change his mind that the Exodus was a historical event, just that the evidence that he used was not applicable because uh, he, he thinks now that the, the late date for the Exodus is, um, is, Correct, and so he back, you know, he backtracked on that, and I, I recommend, I, I commend him for doing that because I did this, I did the same thing with my book on hell. I, I went from traditionalism to conditional immortality, so I just wrote a new book and said, okay, I was wrong. So, <laughs> it, it's it's always good to change your mind. I'm sad though because I never got to see it. Uh, so, what evidence do you think? Um, there is for the Exodus, um, and w what what date do you do you are you an early dater? Or are you a late dater? And like, what are some of the reasons for why you take the date that you do? Yeah, so I am not an Exodus expert, but I do think, and it, for people who want to know the varying views on that, I think Patterns of Evidence does a good job um, at least illuminating what the different views are out there and why different people hold the different views. I tend to side with uh, Associates for Biblical Research. They um, propose Amenhotep II as the pharaoh of the Exodus, um, and I tend to agree with that for a couple of reasons. The first one being the dating of the Exodus is 480 years before Solomon builds his temple, and so that would make it about 1446 um, BC, and Amenhotep II is in fact the pharaoh during that period of time, but of course that's really not enough details um, to confirm 100%. But there's some interesting things about his life that make more sense if coupled up with the Exodus. And I do think that that is kind of the name of the game when it comes to identifying the Exodus in uh, the historical record is we're not going to expect to find record of the Exodus in the Egyptian record because of the fact that the pharaohs were considered divine. And so to have your entire slave population take over and exit and massacre your army would be um, the equivalent of blasphemy. And so that we wouldn't expect to see the Exodus in their records. And that's typical for ancient Near Eastern people anyways. They didn't record their losses. They typically recorded their victories. But there's some interesting thing about things about Amenhotep II's um, reign. First of all, he only has two military campaigns in his entire um, reign. The very first one is to squelch a revolt immediately after his father dies and he takes over. And it's extremely bloodthirsty. He goes and... Um, uh, squelches the revolt and then comes sailing back into Thebes, hanging the bodies of the seven chiefs, chiefs sorry, who revolted against him from his ship in the front of his ship as he comes sailing in. Very obviously, this is what's going to happen to you if you defy my authority. But then um, he only has one other campaign and he starts it in the wrong time of year. So in that 
part of the world, the cold and rainy season starts in November and ends around April. And so April would have been the time that a, a, a king would have gone off to war because they would have had the longest part of the year to accomplish their goal. But this uh, particular campaign starts in November. It would have been the worst time of year for him to go. And um, there's a, a tactical um, component to it. One, he goes barely into Canaan, which is not where their enemies were. The Egyptian enemies were up in Syria, north of Canaan. So he goes barely into Canaan and um, it, the focus seems to be on pillaging and bringing back slaves as well as um, chariots and gold and all sorts of other belongings. And so this all looks like the kinds of things that we see leaving with the Israelites in Egypt. Um, and all of this makes sense if in fact you've lost your army because you don't want to then go provoke your actual enemies because you might not survive. But at the same time, you don't want to um, kind of just fold so you can save face. Um, but you would also need to repopulate your workforce. And this particular campaign, he brings back 46 times more slaves than all the other Egyptian campaigns combined. He brings back over 100,000 um, slaves in this one campaign. So it looks like he's attempting to repopulate a workforce. It looks like he's trying to create provision for the, for the rest of the year. Um, but then he, in addition to that, this is the end of his campaigns. He spends the rest of his time as Pharaoh making peace treaties. So it's a very big about face from his character when he first started. Now, none of that, of course, is a nail in the coffin in terms of making him the Pharaoh, but it makes a whole lot of sense if you parallel those details up with the biblical record. Yeah. Yeah. And this whole, this whole uh, Exodus um, discussion, um, we, there could be, there could we could do a, a whole podcast on that alone. I listened to Michael Heiser's uh, series on the Exodus on the Naked Bible podcast, and he 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 argued for he doesn't really like take a, a stance on the dating or who was the Pharaoh, but he argued both sides. And I'm like, yeah, this this debate can get really granular really quickly. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting, especially because I was watching um, the Patterns of Evidence, their movie on the Mount Sinai um, a couple of years ago, and they went through all of the details. And it's really, it's really interesting because if you go and look at the details here, you can find compelling cases on a variety of the different views. It's not, it's not an arbitrary debate. It's not that anybody's question begging. Um, it's there's a lot of nuance, and there is a lot of data there. That's the most fascinating part. Is the Exodus is very often rejected as not historical, but there's a lot of historical data um, of the Israelites being in Egypt and um, of their interaction with the people groups around there. So it's definitely worth exploring if that's a topic that you're interested in. Yeah. So is there any evidence for the Jericho event recorded in the book of Joshua? Yes. <laughs> yes, there definitely is. Um, that's another one that's really interesting. Um, what we see at that particular site is it is often argued that there was not a uh, inhabited city at the site of Jericho by the time when Jer or sorry when Joshua would have come through. There was some controversy between a couple different excavators at the site. Um, and a handful of them said, yes, there was a city that was burned and um, at the time that 
Joshua would have come through. There was another group who said, well, based off some missing pottery that we would have expected to be there, that there was not in fact a populated city at this period of time. And so Joshua would have maybe came through here, but there was nothing for him to conquer. But actually um, a potter, an ancient Near Eastern pottery expert at Associates for Biblical Research, Bryant Wood, he actually went and reviewed the findings of the last person, Kathleen Kenyon, Kathleen Kenyon who had been responsible for saying that there was missing pottery. And there was two things he uncovered. First of all, she was looking for Cypriotic bichrome bi pottery, which is essentially expensive imported pottery from the Cyprus um, Mycenaean area, which is kind of over by Greece. So it would have had to have traveled the entire uh, Mediterranean Sea and then been carted to what Kathleen said was a backwoods, backwater area of Israel. And so it would have been very expensive to import this pottery. And so uh, she did not look at the local pottery, which in fact was the correct kind of pottery for that period of time. That's how we date sites is based off the kind of pottery that exists in a particular layer. But on top of that, they also, it turned out that the kind of pottery she said was absent, the Cypriotic pottery was there and it was in her, um, in her records. And so she had misidentified some of her findings. Um, and so we had good reason to believe that there was in fact a populated city at that time. But not only that, We've got some uh, scarabs, which are amulets from um, Egypt that are continually found in graves that are dated from the 1500s all the way down to the 1300s. And so what that means is that if, in fact, you have people burying people for the entire time that Joshua would have come through, then you have to have people living at the city in order for them to be dying and being buried. And so there was, um, we have good reason based off the amulets as well to think that there was a populated city during this period of time. But then the next objection is that, well, it was probably the Egyptians then, they were the ones who came and conquered. But what we know about Egyptian military tactic is they were extremely patient. They would come right before the harvest when all the food was still out in the fields. And then they would seize a city while the people inside starved to get death and the people, um, the Egyptian um, military would have all the food they needed out in the fields. And so, and we have record of them waiting and sieging for cities up to three years. And so, but what we find at this particular site is that um, the city was in fact destroyed. The city walls had fallen and then the entire city was destroyed by fire. But what we also find is that there are tons of pottery full of grain in the city. So what this tells us is that there was a short siege because the food is still there. They didn't finish eating it. Um, it happened after the harvest because the food is all still in the city. So these don't fit with the Egyptian tactics. And it was a very short siege um, because of the fact that it was, um, the biblical record tells us it was only supposed to be seven days. But not only that, if the Egyptians had come in and conquered, they would have taken all of the provisions home with them. They wouldn't have burned them and left them in the city. But that's something that the Israelites were commanded to do. They were not to, to take anything from the city for themselves. They were to burn everything for the Lord. And so there's details about the actual conquest itself that make more sense if it was in fact the Israelites. Yeah, yeah, I, th I find that I find that to be a compelling argument. Um, so, what about historical evidence for the existence of King David? I know you mentioned one piece of evidence earlier in this podcast. Um, was that the? I don't know if that was the Tel Dan inscription or a different inscription. Um, if if you. It, if, you, if it wasn't the Tel Dan inscription, could you like get into that for our audience? Because I, I think that this uh, this uh, this inscription is fascinating. 
Yeah, so it was the Taldan inscription that I spoke about earlier, but I can give a little bit more detail on that. Um, I do find it really interesting because I also think that it's fascinating how um, how it happened. So it was found at the site of Dan. It was found in secondary use in a wall, um, and they were actually done excavating for the season. And they were up there taking some final photos, and the, the uh, photographer was packing up the equipment, leaned it against the wall, and what she ended up seeing um, as the light hit one of the rocks, it looked as though that there was some sort of um, it, some sort of writing on one of the rocks that were used in secondary use inside of the wall. And so what it turned out to be when they pulled it apart was um, what we have called the Taldan inscription. It was a uh, victory stella where it boasted the victory of the king of Aram over the king of Israel of the house of David. We don't know the exact king that was... Um, doing the victory because that part of the inscription is lost. Um, however, and it doesn't mention the particular king um, of Israel that um, had been conquered because that part of the text had been lost as well. We've only got three fragments out of the whole victory, Stella. Um, but it does support the idea that the people of Israel had a king of the Davidic dynasty that was prominent enough for a foreign king to boast victory over. And for those of you who are not familiar with what a victory stella is, it's basically a large stone kind of monolith that would have been set in the middle of a conquered city to allow, to remind the people whom they now paid homage to. And so that's what this was um, from the King of Aram. Nice. Uh, is there any other, uh, evidence for the existence of King David or is the Tel Dan inscription all we've got for right now? That's the only thing that we have with his name, uh, any, any association with his name explicitly. Yeah. Unfortunately. Yeah. But, um, you know, new stuff is, is always coming up in archeology. span there, there may, they may find like coins or, a, or another inscription someday. I know that would be amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Can you tell us about the uh, the archaeological confirmation for Hezekiah's tunnel recorded in 2 Kings 2020 and in 2 Chronicles 32? Yeah, so mostly with that, there's not a whole lot of controversy when it comes to Hezekiah's tunnel. Um, but it is fascinating because it is one of those examples of when archaeology and the Bible parallel and kind of illuminate one another. Um, and so... Um, the, the outline of this particular event is that uh, the King Sennacherib, the uh, king of um, Assyria, he's coming through. He's unhappy with Hezekiah because Hezekiah has revolted. And he goes through and um, destroys Lakesh, and then he's on his way to Jerusalem. And the city walls of Jerusalem are, uh, the water supply of Jerusalem is outside of the city walls. And so if the city were to be sieged, then what would need to take, or it would be a very short siege. The Assyrians would have had the water supply and the Israelites wouldn't have made it for very long. And so what Hezekiah does in preparation for the siege is Israel is, or Jerusalem is built on top of a stone mountain. And so he has um, the people carve a tunnel from the water springs through the city to bring the water source inside so they can survive a, a siege. And so the scriptures don't actually give us a whole lot of detail on this particular event. However, we get a little bit of illumination from a plaque that has since been stolen, but we have uh, photographs of it. We have a little bit of illumination as to what was going on with the, the um, excavators at the time when they um, were digging the tunnel. And it says, that the tunnel, and this is the story of the tunnel, that while the axes were against each other, 
while there were three cubits that were left to cut, and a cubit is about the length of um, from wrist to elbow on a, a grown man's arm, that while there were three cubits left to cut, the voice of a man called to his counterpart, for there was Zada in the rock, and on the right, and on the day of the tunnel being finished, the stone cutter struck each man toward his counterpart, axe against axe, and flowed water from the source to the pool for 1,200 cubits and 100 cubits high over the head of the stone cutters. And so it was a pretty cool event because they're not sure that they're going to make it. They're coming from opposite angles. You know, obviously, they have engineers, so they're, they're not doing this completely blindly, but they are pretty relieved when they meet each other in the middle, and then they also have angled it correctly that the water flows through. So it's, um, it's a pretty cool encounter and, and uh, um, provides a little bit of humanity to the biblical account that doesn't have a whole lot of detail. Um, so... This has been. Uh, would you would you say that the um, the case for the Old Testament reliability that this it's a cumulative case? You've got to put all of this evidence together um, before you can say uh, that the the Old Testament is reliable and the events the, the narratives are historical. Yes, I would say so. Typically, I try to break it into three categories. So I think that the Old Testament is you can believe that the Old Testament is, 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 uh, sorry, is historically reliable because it's historically informative, consistent, and it's historically corroborated. So the Bible has information about historical peoples, nations, and events before secular historians do. So that's where it's historically informative. And that we got an example of that with the Hittites earlier. It's historically consistent in that the events of the Bible parallel what we see in other cultures and it harmonizes with them or illuminates historical data. And so that would be an example kind of what we have with uh, the city of Lakesh, which we didn't talk about here, but there's a frieze in Nineveh that pictures, um, gives like kind of a, a snapshot of what happened at the siege of Lakesh when the um, when Sennacherib went and conquered that, which is also mentioned in scripture, and Hezekiah's tunnel. And so there's um, consistency between the archeological record and the biblical te text. Um, and then it is historically corroborated where we see illumination of details having to do, sorry, that was backwards, yeah. We see illumination of details um, in the flood and um, also the creation accounts in other um, ancient Near Eastern records as well. And so I think that when you look at the entire Old Testament as a whole, you can see patterns that um, correlate with the historical record in ways that give us reliability that we would not otherwise have. But I also think that you can do that all the way through the Old Testament, which I think is significant. So in my presentation, I don't give nearly any or nearly all the details that are available in the archaeological record. But what I try to do is show that from each of the large periods of history, from the origins, through the patriarchs, through the um, exodus and the kings and the divided monarchy and the prophets, that there is good evidence all the way through. Um, and that's just a small amount of what's available in what I've given in my presentation in the past and what we've talked about here today. Um, but I do think it, it's important that the whole thing be true, because if, in fact, we cherry pick what we think to be historically reliable, then we've got a hermeneutical issue. And so, um, yeah, I do think that it's a cumulative case to answer your question. <laughs> yeah, I bring that up because I, I know that some uh, some people, some skeptics, um, they like they try to they they miss the forest for the trees. Uh, they mm -hmm. they end up looking at like each individual case. Oh, that doesn't prove that 
Uh, that, that okay, that may prove that a guy named David existed, but that doesn't mean that everything he did was, uh, you know, true, or that the Old Testament is uh, is reliable. Um, but like the case with the the case for the New Testament, the case for the Old Testament, and you know, that, it's just the nature of keeping cases. You've got to take all of the evidence, and while no in particular. Uh, piece of evidence uh, is enough to reach the conclusion on its own when you take it all into consi- all into consideration together then you know you you have a, a powerful case I like what uh, I think Jay Warner Wallace um, I like how he depicts it in his book cold case Christianity when it, uh, talking about the the case for the reliability of the New Testament um, he uses a lot because he's a de- He's a detective. He uses a lot of um, like detective crime scene analogies, and you know he's got this. He's got this guy who uh, he committed a murder, and he's got this. He's got like a picture that shows several different independent pieces of evidence that make up a cumulative case. So there's like you know jeans that have been uh, they had blood on them, but they've been bleach spotted clean. Uh, he, he matches, he's got the, he's got the same height and, and, um, width he, uh, as the, uh, as the, um, the, the, mer- <clears throat> as the people who, uh, who said, who saw the crime scene, uh, the suspect matches that, um, they found a baseball bat that was dented in a way that, uh, was not consistent with normal use. Uh, just a whole lot of other things that by themselves would not convict this person as the murderer, but every single one of them uh, altogether, especially that last, the last one he uses, he uses an example of a, an automobile, a very special automobile. And there's only like four uh, that are owned in the entire state. Uh, and so all of that taken together, you're, you're, pretty confident by the end in saying, yeah, this guy is the killer. We need to put him away. Well, and I think that it also has the opportunity to, especially with archaeology, it's validating the witness. So in your crime scene analogy as well, there is, um, and I think Warner Wallace also puts this in the same book, where he talks about how do you test a reliable witness? And you go around and you authenticate whether or not this person is notorious for telling the truth. And so you would go and interview families and friends. And so an eyewitness testimony is only good as good as the truthfulness of the eyewitness. And that's what the authors of the Old Testament books are, is they are eyewitnesses to some sort of interaction with some sort of, uh, or some person and God. And so if they are accurate when they give the things that we are able to validate, then we have good reasons to believe the things that are unverifiable. And so the fact that God could part a sea or rain fire from heaven at a specific time as a judgment, like those are things that stretch you because they are theologically oriented kind of truths. But if the history that is able to be verified around that event shows itself to be reliable, then it says that the person who wrote these events is someone that whose word that you can trust. And so I like to say that the historical reliability of the events in the Bible 
is able to give you more confidence that the theological truths and the, and the less uh, the things that cannot be proven are true. And so that's the that's the goal is to bolster one's confidence in the things that are um, unprovable. Because I know for me that that was that was actually how I got into archaeology. I was raised in the church and Christian school, and I didn't. I was a Christian because you know, it was the thing that we did. And I didn't actually believe that the Bible was true. And I, if you had asked me that, I couldn't have articulated it, but I ended up in a biblical archaeology class and a creation science class and all these questions about whether I could believe this stuff, all of them got answered. And I didn't even know that I had them. And that changed everything for me because once I believed that the authors of the Bible were reliable authors, then when Jesus, when they wrote that Jesus's death on the cross counted for me, and had implications for my eternity, then I could believe that because that seemed unbelievable. But if they were authentic and accurate witnesses, then maybe just maybe that could be true too. Yeah, yeah, and that's the way that's the way um, that's the way faith is properly defined. It's trust in a. Uh, I think it was Augustine who's, who who phrased it this way. It's faith in a in a source. That you have uh, reason to believe, or, you know, yes. or a, a reason. It's it's faith in a trustworthy source, uh, mm -hmm. or so, something like that. I'm I'm paraphrasing, uh, but it's it's like yeah, you know, if you've got not everything in the Bible has direct evidence for it. Like I don't know of any evidence for Samson killing a whole bunch of Philistines, right. but I do have we do have a lot of evidence for the reliability of the Old Testament. We got evidence for the reliability of the New Testament. And like I said at the beginning of this podcast, uh, we've got the authority of Jesus. We can make a, we can even make a minimal facts case for uh, Jesus's resurrection uh, and that and his claim to be God. And, you know, we can we can believe the Old Testament on those grounds. So I don't have to have uh, evidence for every last conversation and event uh, in the Old Testament, uh, indirect or direct, uh, as long as we have evidence that the Testaments are reliable, if we've got a good authority like Jesus, um, that's, you know, that's, that's good enough for me. I, I don't need to have like some, you know, uh, in, you know, I don't need to necessarily have some inscription that from a Philistine that said, whoa, this dude, Samson, just killed all of my brothers. <laughs> he brought the house down. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree. And it's funny because people, that's one of the things that I think is important to keep in mind is that there is enough evidence out there for somebody who wants to believe to be con confident in believing. But there is not going to ever be enough that if somebody is bent on not believing that they're not going to, that it's going to force them into faith. And I think there's two reasons for that. One is that God loves us and he's not going to force our will um, in that way. But I think this, the second angle is is if you think about what it would take today, I meet people and they're like, well, I just wish God would just make it clear to me that he exists. I'm like, well, if you saw on the five o'clock news that God just like came down from heaven, you would think that that was a hoax. You would think Hollywood got involved. So what would it actually take you as an individual to be convinced? And I think you have to first ask yourself that question before you can even look at the evidence, because some people, it doesn't matter how much evidence is out there. They're just still just never going to believe. Yeah, yeah, I talk about that in some of my um, some of my material on hell and the hiddenness of God. How you know there are some people who, I mean, and that, and I, I I say that like 
when people ask me why didn't Jesus appear to the Pharisees and Pilate, I say, well, you know, the Pharisees, they, they said that, you know, his exorcisms were of the devil. If Jesus, if Jesus appeared before Caiaphas, he'd probably like, well, he, put, he wouldn't get across, but he would like, I don't know, you'd say, yeah, Satan. Uh, or, or, you know, Pilate might say, boy, I, I, that, that pork I ate was really bad. Um, you know, they would have explained it away. And, you know, if Jesus, you know, he's omniscient, he knows that, uh, it wouldn't do any good. So there would be no need to appear to, to you know, the Caiaphas and the Pharisees. Yep. Yep. Now, be before we um, before we wrap things up, uh, where can people go to like get into more of the? Because we've only like scratched the surface here in terms of data. Like, there's been whole books written on this. What what kind of books um, or you know, yeah, books or DVDs or, or anything that, that you would recommend we go into uh, more depth than we've gone into in this podcast episode? Yeah, I think an excellent resource is Associates for Biblical Research. Their website is biblearchaeology.org. They have articles on a variety of different stuff, and they also have a quarterly magazine that you can be um, get mailed to you with new discoveries and updates and all sorts of stuff like that. Um, so I definitely recommend them. Um, and they, they are people in the archaeology camp tend to fall into one of two categories. There's biblical minimalists and biblical maximalists. And so Associates for Biblical Research is a maximalist group. They believe that the Bible is true and that it's a historical document that we can use in the archaeological record. Um, there's another group that is well-known, um, Biblical Archaeology Archae Society, um, which publishes Biblical Archaeology Review, and they are minimalists. So they don't believe that the Bible is a historical document that's worthy of bringing into their archaeological in, um, investigations, um, but they actually have more funding. So if you check out their, um, their magazine, you can actually find out about more discoveries just because they have more resources to do them. I would be cautious about conclusions. And so um, obviously always double check the conclusions you can, but you can use the evidence from either group um, in order to compare it with the scriptures. Just be cautious in the conclusions that they draw from it. Um, but then in addition to that, if you go to my website, doubtlessfaith.com, I have a resources section. Um, I haven't written any of those things, but I have links to a bunch of different archaeology books that you can um, check out there as well. And so that um, can provide some additional resources. But biblical archaeology, um, biblicalarchaeology.org, Associates for Biblical Research. That would be my first place to recommend. Okay. Um, I also I also recall a book I would recommend. Uh, um, I can't remember the name. I have it somewhere around here uh, that Norman Geisler co-wrote with someone. I'll look it up on Amazon, but I think it's, this is one I would recommend. I'll just type in uh, Norman Geisler Archaeology. It's uh, um, the, Bible, the Bible difficulties book with, um, is that the one? Uh, no, this, this one had to do specifically with archeology. span Um, I'll just pull it up here. Just type in, but yeah, here we go. Um, the popular handbook of archeology span and the Bible by Joseph Holden and Norman Geisler. That's, uh, Yep, that, yep. I, I think that's a good book on, on biblical archaeology you could check out in addition to the resources that Kristen Davis uh, listed. It's, uh, you can get it on Amazon. Um, let's, 
let's see. Uh, the hardcover is seventeen forty nine. Kindle is sixteen forty two. So go go check out uh, that and Kristen Davis's resource, and um, that that will be a fascinating study. So thank you, Kristen, for being on the Cerebral Faith Podcast. Um, it, this was a very stimulating discussion, and I'm sure it will be edifying to many. Thanks for having me. So you can check out Kristen Davis's website, um, doubtlessfaith.com. I'll provide a link to it in the show notes below. I'll also provide a link to it, a uh, link to uh, Norman Geisler's book and uh some of the other resources that uh, Kristen Davis linked to, you can check those out just by clicking the links wherever you're listening to this podcast, whether it be on the Cerebral Faith website, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever. Um, and by the way, if you, uh, I want to plug my YouTube channel, Cerebral Faith Video. I'm currently doing a series on Christology and the doctrine of the Trinity. I just, uh, there are a series of live streams. Um, we just recently concluded the Genesis uh, primeval history period where I exegeted Genesis 1 to 11. Um, and so I started this new series on Christology. Last week, uh, I delved into the biblical evidence for the deity of Christ. Um, and you can, all of the live streams, you can watch them uh, even if they're not live. Uh, you can watch them on playback. But this coming. Uh, Monday at 8 o'clock p.m. Eastern Standard Time, I'm going to be talking about the logical coherence of the Incarnation. Like last week, we looked at, does the Bible teach that Jesus is God? And so this week, we're going to be doing a more philosophical discussion and, and asking the question, is the Incarnation even coherent? So just type in Cerebral Faith Video on YouTube, and um, you'll You'll find it very easily. It's the the icon, the profile picture is uh, a, a brain with a cross in the middle. And subscribe. I'd like to give a shout out to my patrons, Zach Miller, Slam RN, James Godomsky, Andrew Milnick, Michelle Minton, Christopher Rogers, Nathan Hamilton, Edwin Liu, Jordan Hampton, Brandon Whitaker, and David Parrish. And if you'd like to support this ministry financially, go to patreon.com slash cerebral faith. Peace out. God bless. And I will see you next time. And keep using the brain that God gave you.